We have two readings today. The first reading is taken from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Our second reading is taken from Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send you back Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This is God's word. Good morning again, everyone. We've got this great passage in Philippians to look at together. Um, and perhaps I could just say, um, it would be lovely to meet you afterwards if I, if I never have done. That would, that would be great after the service is all finished. But let's pray as we begin this sermon. Father God, you are the great 
Lord above everything. And we pray that you would give us a blessing this morning as we gather in London to read your book. Pray that whether we're very new to it or whether we've read this over and over again, there'd be something for each of us from your hand this morning. And we pray in the power of the Spirit, through the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. When you're up to your elbows in nappies, or you spend all day getting pushed around by a bully of a boss, or when uh, you spend all day pushing paper or emails around to make money for other people, or when you have a pile of essays and coursework and deadlines on your desk, or when you just can't move for the J-cloths and the cleaning products, how do you think about that as a Christian? How do you behave in an ordinary day as a Christian believer? What would the Bible say to us about that? What's the ordinary Christian experience? I've got a friend um, who uh, recently posted a video on the internet of his baby who just turned one. And he took a, he took a little video, bit of video footage of, of one second every day of this baby's first year. So, you know, zzz, oh, baby eating dinner. Zzz, I'll just film for one second. Or uh, oh, baby's sitting in the back of the car asleep. I'll take one second of footage. Or, you know, baby is crying again. And then he, on the first birthday, he put together 365 seconds of, of video footage. It was quite clever. I'd not seen that before. It was also pretty boring, you know? <laughs> I mean, he, he actually said as much in, in the post. He was like, actually, I thought this would be really good. It's actually just pretty boring because babies don't do very much, you know? There's baby for like 365 seconds. Uh, but... That is a bit dull, isn't it, to just watch a baby doing nothing. I wonder if there's a bit of us that thinks, actually, my, my Christian life in general can just be a bit dull. It's just sort of me doing nothing or doing everyday stuff or doing monotonous tasks. If you were here last week or if you just look back in your Bibles to the start of chapter 2, there was like this incredible mountaintop experience of... Um, describing Jesus' life, you know, the stuff that he did, the big decisions he took to step down from heaven and then to step down again and to humble himself even to death on a cross. It was like the the glory of those moments was just totally evident. It's one of the the loftiest pieces of literature in the Bible, indeed in the whole world. And yet, today we get to this passage and it's a bit more every day, you know? It's a bit more, here's a snapshot of me doing something I always do. Here's a snapshot of me not just taking a massive life-changing decision, but just cracking on with life. I mean, I suppose the reality is probably no one will write a hymn about your or my life, you know, the way they did about Jesus Christ's life in the Bible in Philippians chapter 2. And yet we're called to live it for Jesus Christ. So what would God have us know in those everyday monotonous situations? If you remember, we've uh, ever since chapter one, verse twenty-seven, we've been here in a sort of in this midsection, main section of Philippians. The main command it all hangs off is chapter one, twenty-seven. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We, we saw last week that it, it affects our thinking. That's the first half of chapter two, and then today we'll we'll see more about everyday behaviour. What do you do when you're up to your elbows in the muck of everyday life? Uh, I've got um, three imperatives, three commands for you that Paul lays out here in the Bible and then at the very end you get two examples, little pastiches of good examples. So uh, three imperatives are there's no reclining, there's no whining and there's no rejoicing. 
I know it's a bit cheesy to have two of them rhyme. It kind of helped me remember them, but uh, hopefully you'll, you'll see that they're here in the Bible. So first of all, in first imperative, there's no reclining because God's at work. Just look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, no reclining. Continue to work out your salvation. This isn't a rebuke. You see how verse 12 is worded? It says, um, you've always obeyed this. This is good. You've not only done it when I'm there, but, you know, breathing down on you, but when I've been away, hundreds of miles away. Continue to work out your salvation. Carry on as you are doing. Do it with fear and trembling because God's at work. But there's no reclining. Continue. Now, just a point of clarification. We're not to get our knickers in a twist about this phrase, um, continue to work out your salvation. If you, sure, if you chop that out and take it in isolation, it does sound rather like the Christian life. Salvation in the whole is all down to me, doesn't it? Continue to work out your salvation. Whew, there's a lot of pressure there. If everything is down to me, saving myself from my sins is down to me, getting myself to heaven, collapsing over the finishing line is down to me. But you can't interpret that against the rest of the Bible, not even against the rest of the sentence. Do you see how he adds in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So you have to balance that. There's, there's no reclining, don't slacken off, living for God, working out your salvation, pressing on, but God's at work in you. You see how that works? It's not saying, look, this is all over to you now. Here's a, here's a deadline, expect to see you in heaven on the final day. It's not saying that. It's not even saying a sort of halfway house in between that says, Jesus saved you, now the perseverance is up to you. Good luck, see you at the finish line. It's not saying that either. God works in you. The rest of the Bible would testify to that as well, not least the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You know, He's a, a deposit guaranteeing my inheritance. He lives in me. He guarantees that God is with me right till the finish line. God works in you. But there's no reclining either. There's a story about a pianist called uh, Paderewski. Sorry if you've heard this story before. But um, Paderewski was a Pole living in America in the first half of the 20th century. And a great pianist who gives this concert at Stanford University. And um, as the lights, uh, as, as everyone's ushered into the auditorium and there's a bit of chat beforehand, a, a mother and her young boy walk in and they take their seats waiting for the concert to start and there's chat. And the mother, gets, she gets talking to someone next to her and as the, lights, the house lights go down and as the curtains open, she looks back ready for the performance and sees, oh, he's gone, my son is gone. Where's he gone? And as she's panicking, her heart rate's going up, she looks up on stage as everyone else's eyes also lift to the stage and he's sitting at the piano. <laughs> he's sitting on the stage at the enormous grand piano, the only thing on the stage. And she, with horror, she watches as he lifts one finger on his right hand and he goes, da, 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 da. And of course she's wondering, how, what am I gonna, how am I going to extricate my son from this terribly embarrassing situation? And just she's wondering what to do. She sees, of course, waiting in the wings for his big entrance, Paderewski, you know, waiting to come on. He, perhaps quicker than anyone else, spots what's going on. Apparently he walks over to the piano. He, he leans down into the boy's ear and he says, don't stop, son. Keep playing. Don't stop. And this great musician, he reaches down over the boy with his left hand and he just starts improvising this incredible 
bass line over the top of da 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 da, da like that. And then he reaches down with his right arm and he just starts improvising over the top of the boy's right hand like that. And they keep playing. The, the little boy keeps playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And so Paderewski improvises this incredible masterpiece. You know, if, if God is at work in you, then don't stop, Paul says. Don't, don't stop living the Christian life. Don't use that as an excuse just to give up and say, oh, I'm going to leave it all up to you. Continue to work out your salvation, but be, be encouraged that there is the master who is at work in your life, you know. I love the balance of this, the way Paul puts this in verse 13, do you see, well, verse 12 as well. Do you see, continue to work out your salvation. So there's one mention of the word work. And then do you see the other mentions of it? Verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and literally to work, or in our Bibles, to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So I wouldn't pin everything on that, but isn't it interesting? You know, God, uh, I get one command to work, and then God gets two mentions of the word work. I love the balance of that. Sometimes I think it, we, we rather feel like you know, carrying on as a Christian, becoming more like Jesus, sanctification as we sometimes call it, is a bit like pushing a boulder uphill. You know, It's so incredibly hard and I'm sweating and it's such hard work and any moment now this might come down on me and I might be squashed. You know? I might give up. Actually, a more theological, more biblical view is that God has set in motion a boulder rolling downhill. It is guaranteed to reach its conclusion. And sure, I get to help out directing its path. But God is at work in you. Don't use that as an excuse for reclining. Continue to work out your salvation, he'd say. Okay, second thing. Second imperative. No whining. You're the light. No whining. Uh, Look at verses 14 to 16. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So no whining. You see how he says, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing, or my paraphrase, no, no whining. We are supposed to think of um, grumbly Israel here, I think. So the exact two words Paul uses, grumbling, arguing, he uses them elsewhere at 1 Corinthians 10 to talk about Israel. So it seems he's, he's wanting to channel a bit of Old Testament history. I mean, Israel basically spent half the Old Testament whining. You, know, the, you read the book of Numbers, the whole middle chapters is grumble, grumble, grumble. Oh, you've brought us out of Egypt, but I preferred the food there. Oh, uh, you know, I'd like some fresh water. You know, here's a load of fresh water. Oh, I don't like the leaders. You know, grumble, 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 the whole thing. So we're supposed to have them in, in mind when he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing now that you've been saved. I've been reading this book recently. It's called uh, Woodbine Willie. I know that's a strange name. That was, the, that was the nickname that the troops gave to a chaplain in the First World War. His real name was Geoffrey Studdett Kennedy, and he was a, an Anglican vicar in Worcester. And when the First World War broke out 102 years ago, he signed up as a chaplain. He said, I don't want to fight, but I'll be a chaplain. I'll, I'll, I want to help. So he goes out to France, and he gets the nickname Woodbine Willie because... Um, I guess all the chaplains were sort of milling around wondering what to do because they couldn't take up arms. And Woodbine Willie used to walk through the trenches, especially just as the men were about to go over the top. And uh, he'd hand out New Testaments. And if they said, no, I don't want that, he'd give them a Woodbine, a cigarette, uh, sometimes both. Um, I suppose not very PC these days to give out cigarettes, but if you're about to get mown down by a machine gun, I suppose you may as well have a cigarette. Um, anyway, he, 
he, he went and did this, and, and he acquired this reputation. Oh, here comes Woodbine Willie. Here comes the chaplain, the padre, you know, coming to give out the cigarettes or the New Testament, the Bible. Anyway, there's this, this story that's relayed in the book about how um, one night, it's like 2 or 3 a.m., the men have been detailed with this mission to crawl over the top in the pitch black into no man's land and dig a, like a forward trench. So all the, all the men in this company, they're all in their bellies with little spades trying to dig a trench, and they've got like 18 inches down. And they're two hours in, in the middle of the night, in the wet French mud. And the, the, the captain, the commanding officer, says to Woodbine Willie, morale is pretty low. Would you mind just going up there and cheering them up? I mean, what would you do? I don't know. So he, he, he says, okay, I'll do what I can. And he, he crawls out on his belly into no man's land, 3 a.m. If, if they get seen, they're dead. And uh, he crawls up to the men who they're trying to dig quietly. And he says, hello. <laughs> you know, in that very old school British way. And, uh, and they said, who are you? Because they can't see in the dark. And he, and he says, it's the church. S- strange line. And then the guy replies with a line that Woodbine Willie always remembers. And, he's, and, and the, the squaddy, the soldier says, what the F is the church doing here? You know, wh- what the F is the church doing when I'm up to my elbows in, in, in mud trying to do a monotonous task? What are you doing here? What, what could you possibly have to say to me? Woodbine Willie tells that story wherever he goes after that. Do you see what the church is doing here, verse 15? So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When our generation is warped and crooked, we do live in a warped and crooked generation, don't we? And we, we, It's hard to find a leader who's above reproach in politics or any aspect of the world. It's hard to sort out our domestic politics, whether party politics or European. It's hard, it's hard to figure out the way forward in international disputes, never mind in our own homes and our relationships. We do live in a warped and crooked generation, but Christian, you are to be among them as a, a light, just twinkling in the sky. Paul had in mind here Daniel 12, which is why we had it read earlier on. Maybe you noticed how it it talks about uh, Daniel 12 verse 3. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and will lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There is a a wisdom in the evangelist and I was struck by how ordinary that is. It's just an ordinariness to thinking if I go around grumbling and complaining to everybody, all my colleagues and all my neighbours and everyone who knows me, it's not going to shine very brightly. No one's going to look at my life and think, oh, you've got something I want. We tell our toddlers off for um, whinging and complaining the whole time. You know, there's a special toddler way of saying, I want this. But they don't just say it once. They'll say it like a hundred times throughout the day. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And they get louder and louder and louder. And we say, that's an unreasonable way to behave. Please be quiet. <laughs> Good luck if you can deliver that line as calmly as, as I just did. I've never managed it in real life. Um, but I wonder if we've just got an adult version of whining in that way, which says, I want this, I want this, I want this. I don't want this, I don't want this. And we just say it over and over again to anyone who'll listen. No, no whining, Paul would say. I th- the reason is, it's not just a, a blanket prohibition, be quiet. It, is, um, it reveals what you are living for, really. Remember in chapter 1, famously, there's this Philippian mantra that says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You might be familiar with that. That's, that's Paul's lofty thing about his life. For me, to live is Christ. Well, if you think that for, for you, really, to live is nice, 
You know, to live is comfort. Just for, for me, to live is just to be comfortable. And obviously, if I, if, if, if I take away from you the thing that makes you comfortable, then you're just going to start grumbling about it. Because your, your life's motto has just been put in jeopardy. You know, I'm, I'm no longer, I've no longer got the thing I want in my life if to live is nice and you've just taken it away from me. If for me to live is Christ, you can't take him away from me. Well, why would I grumble? I've still got him. You can do anything you like to me. You can put me in a jail in ancient Rome and I won't grumble about it because I've still got the thing I really want. To live is Christ. Of course, that raises the question, but isn't there any way I can ever raise a complaint? I can ever put forward a negative in life? Well, if you were, if you were with us in August, we went through the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament and we saw that as a book about complaining. There is a way to voice a complaint. I mean, the main thing Habakkuk taught us in that respect was you can go direct to God with that complaint. You don't waste your time complaining to human beings who can't really do anything about it. It's okay to talk straight to God about that. But um, in principle here, no whining because you're the light. Okay, no reclining, no whining. And then third imperative, and maybe gets a bit more cheerful here, more rejoicing. Leaders offer themselves. That's, that's, that's the reason. Let's have some more rejoicing, Paul says, because lead, your leaders are offering themselves. Verses 16 to 18. Have a look. Halfway through verse 16. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You see how he uses this metaphor of a drink offering? Verse 17, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering. It seems to have been a bit of a favorite phrase of Paul because if you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is kind of like his last letter, he's sort of signing off his career and he famously says, I've, I've fought the good fight, I've kept the faith and I'm, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. My life is at an end on earth. So it seems to be a way of him referring to the, the way he pours himself out into his ministry. And he uses it again here. Let me just try and explain what, what he's saying here. The drink offering was a thing that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. So when, when Israel had to offer something, they'd offer a lamb, that was the daily offering, and then you would get a drink offering poured on top of it. So we know from Exodus and Numbers that the volume of fermented wine they were supposed to use was uh, a quarter of a hin. Now, I'm going to assume you don't really know what a quarter of a hin is. I looked it up. It's one and a half litres. So there's two bottles of wine. And Paul says, I am being poured out like a drink offering. I mean, my life is just being poured away. To, to anyone who cares to watch, it just looks like a total waste. And yet... The drink offering in the Old Testament symbolized something special because it was complementary. Of course, if you just look at it on the face of it, it looks like a waste to pour away two perfectly good bottles of wine. But in the Old Testament, it was complementary. So you'd get the, the food offering there on the altar and then on top of it would be poured the drink offering. Do you see the way Paul talks about it? Verse 17. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. So you Philippians, you Christians in an ordinary church, living your Christian life, that's the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. 
I'm just being poured out on top. I'm like, I'm like the compliment. If there's anything I can do to make it more wonderful, to, to spur you on, to make it more glorious worship to God, then I'm do it and I'm glad. And it's not a waste. You see? We're reminded of um, the nature of joy in Philippians. Do you know that Philippians, um, joy is mostly a verb in Philippians? It's a doing word, not a noun. So this, this is the case more, much more often than not. Um, it's not just joy like, ah, I have joy now. I've woken up and I have joy today. I have joy as a noun. Um, if it's gone, oh, I don't know how to get it back. But at the moment, I have it. It's not like that. Uh, rejoice, joy, is a verb mostly in Philippians. So that's why here he's able to say, rejoice. Do it. You don't have it? Well, rejoice. Rejoice with me. You actually get it four times in verses 17 and 18. Uh, I guess they didn't put it in the NIV translation because it would have been a bit clunky, but it should really say, um, end of 17, I rejoice and co-rejoice with all of you. So you two should rejoice and co-rejoice with me. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Do it. More rejoicing, please, because we, we have leaders who offer themselves like this. You know, it's striking to think about the way we honour people, honour leaders in this country. I mean, I guess the obvious example is the New Year's honours list, isn't it, where, people, where they give out knighthoods and OBEs and things like that. Do you know, obviously all areas are worthy of some recognition if people have worked hard, but last year, 2016 New Year's honours, a sculptor, uh, someone involved in horse racing, fashion, an actress, and someone in football. I'm sure they've all worked very hard for it, but I I wish we had a way of honouring Christian service. You know, a way of saying, these leaders have poured themselves out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, and we want to honour them. Oh, that the, the, the church in our generation would have more leaders like this, you know, that, that every village you went to in the UK, that you might find someone just pouring themselves out for the sacrifice and service of the parishioners. In my theological college where I trained, um, the principal once got all the student body together and it was, it was the start of the year and he was supposed to give a sort of uplifting address and instead he said, I want to tell you what was relayed to me in a phone call by a vicar recently. The vicar ran me up and he'd been interviewing one of you for a job and apparently this student said to the vicar, I, I will come and work for you but you need to know um, you've got more to learn from me than I've got to learn from you. Can you imagine saying that in a job interview? Uh, or to any human being? <laughs> Secondly, I'll only work 35 hours a week. What? Um, and uh, thirdly, I'll only work two evenings a week. Oh. I mean, rightly, that was the principle of my theological college, just rebuking all of us and saying, have you even read the Bible? Do you, have you looked at your attitude lately? You see what Paul says about his ministry? I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I, I would, nothing would give me more pleasure than just to waste, waste my life building up your faith. Which is what brings him on to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So these are really examples of the third point. Let's have some more rejoicing because we have leaders like this. So just briefly, let me, let me tell you Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, of course, 19 to 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I've got no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. 
It's tempting to uh, just read verse 19, you know, I hope to send Timothy to you soon and think, ah, he's gone into admin mode. And he's sort of got the diary out and he's saying, I'm, I'm kind of hoping Timothy might come next month and then yada, yada, yada. But actually he, he tells us so much about Timothy and then about Epaphroditus that he's making a point here about leadership, about what to rejoice in. And the thing about Timothy is that he is concerned for others' interests. It just reflects the start of chapter two, do you remember? It's not about, uh, here I am, here I am as an individual, you can all serve me. It's much more about, there you are. I'm concerned for your interests. Then we go on to Epaphroditus, verse 25 to 30. I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to, to take care of my needs. What a list of compliments there. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because he heard, you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have yet less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So the thing about Timothy that Paul picks out is he's, he's really interested in others' welfare. He's the kind of guy you'd, you'd walk up to and you'd, you'd have the conversation, how are you? And then he'd say, how are you? And you know when you can just tell someone's listening when, when they ask you that question? He's that guy. And then there's Epaphroditus. He's the guy who risked his life for the work of Christ. So it, it seems like probably Epaphroditus got ill doing ministry stuff, maybe from cold or traveling or, or just wearing himself out trying to help the church. And he seems to have got ill. But if you went to visit him in hospital, he'd scrape together enough words to say, hey, don't worry about me, how's the church doing? Are they worried about me? I want them to know that I'm okay. I'm still, still trusting Christ. I, I rejoice in him. If you've ever suffered under leadership, bullies, then I, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, uh, if they were in the church, I'm particularly sorry. I want you to know this morning that you have a leader who is much more like this than what you might have experienced in the past. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the leader who looks out for your interests, who risked his life for you, in fact he lost it, who is willing to bring you into heaven and give you that heavenly passport so that you could be in heaven with God, whatever you've done. Of course, if you, if you have suffered under leadership, it's very tempting just to grumble about it and say, if, if only you knew what I'd been through, if only you knew what it was like. But you do have Christ as your leader now. This is your story. You have a better story if you trust Christ now. So what? So what? Let me just suggest two things in closing. We've had our three imperatives. We've had two examples. Just just two little points of application. Firstly, I suggest we give thanks. I suggest you you give thanks. If there's a leader in your life now or there has been in the past who's done this for you in in a role as a Christian leader... Maybe they're here right now at Christchurch Mayfair, you know, as a home group leader, leading the kids right now. Um, if they're on the staff team, if they're one of the apprentices. If there's just someone in the, in the back catalogue of your life who had a great effect as they poured out their life so that you might know Jesus Christ better. And in a minute, I'm just going to pause and you can thank God for them as they poured themselves out for your faith. I see many of those people around at Christchurch Mayfair. 
And the, the second little thing, apart from giving thanks, is um, why don't we just reevaluate the way we think about wasted time? So this week, it can be tempting, you know, if, if you waste a morning on some ridiculous task or someone takes it away from you by their behavior, uh, if, you, if you waste an evening doing what you didn't want to do, here's three little questions we might ask ourselves. Firstly, was God at work? You know, was there an opportunity here to work out my salvation, to, to be godly? If so, then we mustn't think about that as a total waste. Secondly, did I grumble? Was there an opportunity there to show that I'm not living for nice, but rather for Christ? Well, if I managed not to grumble, then that wasn't a waste either. And thirdly, can I rejoice in what I did for others? You know, the, the evening, the day may not have gone the way, exactly the way I planned it, but was I able to do something for someone else, to, to pour myself out in some small way, which might show them Christ in my life? Was God at work? Did I grumble? Can I rejoice in what I did for others? Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Christ. I mean, in a sense, as they died, their lives all looked like a waste. But we rejoice in them now as their heroes of the church. I'm going to leave a moment's quiet. Why don't you thank God for someone in your life who's played that role? And then I'll finish with a, a prayer. Our Lord Jesus, how we thank you that we see these things in you, our great leader who, who poured himself out for our salvation. Help us, we pray, Lord, to, uh, to not recline, to, to, to continue to work out our salvation and not to, to whine and complain and grumble. We long to be different, to show others just a, a tiny pinprick of light about what you've done for us in Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.